0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of our Incredible Founders series, where we dig into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies of the world's best startup founders. I'm Dan O'Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Ilya Polo-Sukin, co-founder of NIR Protocol. NIR is a layer-one blockchain that's incredibly fast, has very low transaction fees, and is climate neutral, in part because of its proof-of-stake model. It's traded on crypto exchanges under the ticker symbol NIR, and has a market cap of just under $5 billion today. From 2020 through 2021, the developers working in NIR's ecosystem, that's everyone building applications on top of their blockchain, quadrupled, making NIR the second fastest growing chain behind only Solana. This episode is a fascinating deep dive into NIR and the NIR ecosystem, the origin story, and what it takes to build a leading blockchain capable of competing with Ethereum and Solana. In this episode, Ilya and I go deep on why proof-of-stake beats proof-of-work, including why Ilya is always looking to build technology that's more efficient and can do more with less, how near approached scaling, and why they went through three separate designs, all of which failed before arriving at the sharding method they use today. How NIR is building a global decentralized community that includes regional hubs located around the world, from Europe to Africa, all of which include accelerators, developer grants, community education, and events. What it's like to found a project and take it from a centralized team of a handful of people to a decentralized community of hundreds of thousands of people located around the world. And how Ilya raised more than $10 million to help fund aid in war-torn Ukraine through his Unchained Fund. As you'll hear, Ilya is an incredibly impressive founder, but more importantly, he's an incredibly thoughtful engineer, leader, and community builder that's built something incredible slowly and methodically, one step at a time. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 108. That's 108. And you can learn more about Near at near.org and explore their developer docs at docs.nier.org. With that, Here's my conversation with NEAR's co-founder, Ilya Pulisukin. Ilya, thank you so much for joining me on Outlier Academy. I'm thrilled to have you on to, to for a really deep dive into what you're building at NEAR with NEAR Protocol. Um, thank you so much thanks, for the time. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for inviting. So, I'd love to start um, because I want to frame up what NEAR is for everyone listening who maybe isn't familiar with it, just by talking about at a really high level. What you're building, and one of the things I thought was interesting there is, you know, there's a uh, the tagline um, that you guys, you know, use sometimes is reimagining your world. What does that mean, and what are some of the really high level goals uh, that you had with Near from day one?
1: So our kind of the highest level vision is to build a world where people control their assets, data, and power of governance. And so what this really means is kind of changing from the current state where there is a third party, either a government or a corporation, that is defining what you own, right? Let's say if you own some piece of land, there's a land aid kind of organization that is actually has a registry that says that you own it. Or, you know, if it's Facebook and all your kind of friends and everything, like presumably it's your friends, but actually Facebook has all this data and you have no like good way to export it and use it in somewhere else, right? And so, and beyond that, you know, power of governance, like we kind of, as a society been moving in this direction of democracy, but even now, right, there's like very much not clear, transparent ways to, you know, self-organize, there's very hard ways to actually enact change in the society. And I mean, we can talk about some of the specific cases that's happening in the world right now, but kind of putting it all together, right, what... Kind of these technologies in Web3 are allowing us to do is reimagine this, is to actually change kind of this ownership, control, uh, governance parts, and actually give them back to the person who has, who initiated, who created, who uh, is transacting. And that's really what we're after, right? Like, how do we achieve that? And so, to achieve that, we need something that actually works for everyone, right? That is so simple to use, so scalable. And so secure as well, right? If we are talking about ownership and assets of people, that it's a no-brainer, right, to switch. And so that's kind of what we've been trying to build in the new ecosystem as a whole.
0: Yeah. And it's a really big vision. I, clearly, part of that, to me, feels like a pushback on the way things are today in our kind of centralized society. And you kind of you know, hinted at it there with, even if you happen to be lucky enough to be in a democratic society, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's transparency and there could still be a lot of not-so-awesome things that are maybe happening. Talk a little bit about maybe what this is a pushback on or what you're trying, you know, like like where the motivation to build near really comes from and what that's grounded in.
1: So I would say there are kind of two sides. There is a pragmatic side, which is, you know, like some of our background is in AI, like my background is AI. And we're actually trying to build something else first. I was my co-founder. And we built a crowdsourcing system, which needed to pay people. Like we wanted to pay people and they were like around the world, like actually very global community we had there. And we just had trouble sending money from our US bank account to China, to Russia, to Ukraine, to Cuba, right? Where we had some people working from. And so a lot of it kind of spanned from that is like, there's always kind of this this bottlenecks and, and limitations that actually hurting people, normal people more than actually I mean, sometimes even the people they were supposed to, like who who was they were supposed to, right? The kind of people who are financing something or money laundering. On the other side, there's a systematic problem, which is kind of, if you're a for profit, you know, big company, you are trying to become monopoly. This is just like the inevitable state of, you know, what you're trying to do. And so. And you kind of see that, like, so I worked at Google and I saw that kind of happening. I mean, I I was somewhat late already, but you can see kind of Google's progression from just don't be evil, you know, really trying to be on the right side, being very conscious about decisions they're making. And then over time, starting to make more and more for-profit decisions because they see, you know, Facebook is doing something like, oh, we should do that too, right? Like, oh, they're tracking users in this way. Well, we should do it too. And so like, they actually kind of, Almost giving up on some of the principles they themselves established originally, right? There was a you know huge disaggregation between different departments, so to make sure the data is not getting leaked between and stuff like this, and so all that was kind of going away because is you know this motivation of generating more profit, of generating more revenue, and so like it's not a, like for me it's not even about specific people who are running these companies. I think it's a systematic like um, kind of a corporation approach that requires, and so. If we don't want to live in that world where it's you know few companies that are monopolies because compared to before tech where there was a lot of kind of like there's multiple companies that could coexist and be like reasonably large and still you know like railways and others were still monopolies in tech you can be monopoly like globally there's no way to you know to take over that right and so What, again, Web3 is offering us is is changing the model, right? Giving it back to the user, giving back the ownership to the user as well, and also motivating users to come in the first place through this. And so we have kind of, for the first time, an ability both to break this monopolies and also create something that is actually non-monopolizable in a way. And this is why, like, for me, Web3 is not about decentralization. I think decentralization is just a tool. What it is about is low switching costs. Like if we are actually achieve low switching costs, right, at every single level, like I as a user, as a company, as a project, as anything can switch reasonably with low switching costs, we are at kind of perfect competition in a way then because everybody needs to compete all the time to be able to actually be the best place where people are running. And so, and like, you can see this, like when we talk about, you know, validators, like on a protocol level, like the switching cost is low, like new validators can come in old can come out. With wallets, with RPCs, with, you know, with all of the stuff, you can always, you know, enter your seed phrase in another wallet, you know, switch RPC endpoint. Like, it doesn't matter that this specific wallet is centralized. It's the fact that you can switch to something else and it's really cheap for you. And so this wallet needs to be really good so you don't switch to something else. That's really kind of how I see this vision kind of coming and, and so, and like, kind of going against some existing thing that is trying to really make switching costs like as expensive as possible or ideally impossible because they just buy everybody out who you would switch to. And so uh, (laughs) you don't have alternatives
0: in the first place. I think that's fascinating. I've never heard anyone talk about that what Web3 is really about is lowering the barrier for switching costs, but it makes so much sense. And, you know, I love the comparison there between in the current model, if you're running a company, you have, you know, what's often called a profit motive, which obviously is you led to, especially with, with companies now competing on a global scale. Yeah. Clearly the goal is to monopolize your entire industry and to do that, not just in one market, but to do that around the world. And yeah, companies can try to do that in a positive way. But I think to your point, it comes with a lot of, you know, kind of negative consequences. And so I love that idea. It's really compelling to almost build a new system, a new structure that one makes monopolies impossible, but also is, I think, creates a level playing field for competition, which honestly for entrepreneurs, I think is incredibly positive. Like, talk about what that unlocks for builders and why that is such an important thing in Web3. So, I
1: think kind of what's happened in Web3, so right? I'll just show you the examples because I think it's more powerful. The examples are Uniswap, which Is a kind of exchange, decentralized exchange software, which was built by you know one guy and then like a small team of this, you know was valued or is valued as like close to Coinbase price, right? Like to a centralized huge, you know thousands of people company, and the reason is is not because of the exchange itself, but because both it amassed kind of the adoption, but also a lot of other applications are using it. And they can use Uniswap the way they cannot use Coinbase. They cannot use, you know, NASDAQ. They cannot build on top of it really easily, kind of extend it in, in ways that the original developers were not thinking is possible. But think of about it. It's a decentralized exchange, which run pretty much by like a team, like, you know, initially a team, like a, in my head, out of a garage, I mean, they were probably in some apartment in, in New York, which runs something that's like worth billions of dollars in financial system. Can you imagine like ever anybody being able to rely on a on a financial system that's run out of a garage for, by a few folks? No, but in crypto, you can because it's, you know, it's deterministic, it runs, it's open source, right? It, you know, even if this team, you know, goes away, but in any way, right, this system continues working. And that's kind of, the benefits that let's say provide is guarantees that it will be predictable in specific ways, right? It will predictably work. It will have specific ways to upgrade and change. It has, you know, community and ownership distributed to the ecosystem. And so the both barrier to entry is very low, right? Like it can be built by, you know, one or two people really easily. And you can have kind of this really big impact on this. And at the same time, somebody can fork it and build something else, right? It's not a zero sum, right? SushiSwap can sh- shown that they can, hey, like we can just fork this existing thing and, and expand from that. And so this is where the switching costs come in. Is like, yeah, you build something, it's amazing, but then low, switch- low switching costs means somebody will be competing with you always. And so like for builders, it means you can start really easily. You can build on top of all these existing pieces and rely that they'll be there. Like if I'm, as when I was doing web two startup, right? And we were like wanting to use some, External service, we need to evaluate like how likely this service will go out of business in the next whatever, like six months, twelve months. Here we don't need to, right? It, it's gonna be running. It has it has all the things there. And so kind of you have this like foundation that you can build on, and then you have this kind of constant competition as you build out. As you actually succeed, then you have a constant competition you need to kind of work, work against. But you know, the barrier of entry is very low.
0: Yeah. The barrier is entry low. So it democratizes people's ability to start something and, and, you know, build something for the market and be able to see what that is. But it's also kind of Darwinian, I think in a really positive sense of over time, the best solutions are always going to be the ones that are winning. And I love that, you know, one way that I've kind of thought of web two versus web three, and it goes to the heart of that example you just shared is web two, you know, as humans, I think a lot of times we're trying to rely on signaling from the companies to interpret who's good, who's bad, who's working well, how good is their technology and with web three, it's like, there's certainly that there's still people that are talking about a project or, you know, advocating for it. But at the end of the day, you can also just go and look at the code base. You can go and look at, you know, the actual nodes that are running. You can just look through to the core technology and, uh, you know, build confidence in that, which seems very, very, very different <laughs> than kind of a web two world. And you
1: can also, you see all the usage as well, as well, right. You can actually see every single, like, versus, you know, people telling you like, hey, we're making this much or we have this much users. You can like, hey, you actually have this much users or not.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, a classic way that might show up is like companies quoting logos of customers and in Web3, it's like, just look at the data (laughs) as you can see it right there. (laughs) I'd love to talk for a little bit about your journey to build near and a little bit of your crypto origin story. Can, can you kind of walk us back in time a little bit and talk about one, how you first became aware of crypto and got interested into it. And then, you know, the journey from that to eventually building near, and maybe those are really closely coupled. Maybe those are further apart, but just walk us through your origin story and the kind of origin story of near.
1: Yeah. I mean, those are pretty, pretty coupled. Uh, I mentioned Kind of my background in AI, I was in Google Research, working across a lot of natural language um, problems, and left to start Near AI, which was a teaching machines to code. We were trying to actually uh, automate a lot, some of the parts of software engineering, and to do that, we needed a lot of data from actual developers. And so, we built this kind of network of students, software engineering students around the world. Where they would do a lot of tasks for us to generate this data, and so kind of as we were realizing, let's just say that at that point, both technology and the scale at which we're, we were operating was not enough to solve that problem. One of my co-authors just started a new startup working on a very similar dimension, uh, so it's get it's getting there. So we, we're just a little bit too early uh, <laughs> for four years early, and so we were thinking like, hey, you know, we built this crowdsourcing system. It actually worked and it was, you know, high quality. We had high, like really good community of developers kind of system of students working on it. And so we started looking at like, how can we like scale that up? And so that, that was the problem. Like we already were like, it was super manual process to send money because like, you know, you need to do PayPal here, Pioneer there, you know, wire transfer, like on Cuba, you need to like convince them to like, for them to have a Spanish passport, to have a bank account in Spain or something, right? Like it it was like a super complicated processes. And so we started looking at crypto. It's like, and and obviously I've heard of crypto before. For me, proof of work always been kind of, I call it not natural. So like for me, natural, natural state is optimization, is always trying to either do more with same energy or do, same with less energy and bitcoin is you know do same with more energy the more successful you are (laughs) and so that that always led me to kind of like this mental block and so when i learned about proof of stake which was a bit earlier i'm like oh yeah that actually makes sense and so when we kind of started uh, diving in we really went in to kind of study all the stuff that's going on right like ethereum bitcoin obviously you know we're not even close to be able even back then to be able to, this was like May 2018. To be able to power something that has like microtransactions, like sending you know dollar to uh, to people, and they're like really h- hard to use. Like if you're trying to actually install Bitcoin wallet, it's still pretty hard. And back then, Ethereum also was super complicated, like
0: much worse than today. Uh, well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it improved a lot to be clear. So and so. We then looked at a lot of other blockchains, and both the ones that were launching or the ones that were in development, and we did not find anything that actually like truly addressed the set of requirements that we had. Right, which is like something that's simple to use, simple to develop, right, as a developer, something that actually scales. You know, if we have like actual million users on it, like will we be paying like insane amounts of money, and it's actually like secure, you know, is secure. And like our background, both me and Alex have been in the competitive programming, which is de- like design kind of, you know, trains your brain to always think in the worst case scenario. Like it, it's, it's literally, you kind of, you're writing some program that will be tested on worst case scenarios. And so kind of just looking through a lot of the designs back then uh, none of them were actually withstanding that judgment, and so we actually have done a YouTube series around that, where we interviewed the protocols, like the you know founders and lead engineers of the protocols, and kind of asking this, them all those questions that we had, which has been uh, pretty interesting for like a small a small audience of technical people who really want to know how all this stuff works. And so that that's really kind of where we we were. We we're like, hey, there's nothing that actually satisfies our requirements. Nothing that you know, designed for scale, right? There's a bunch of stuff that, you know, that says we're going to run more stuff on one machine, right? So uh, most of the protocols right now that actually scaling solutions, they are just saying like, hey, we're going to be more efficient than one computer and the computer may be bigger. But that's not really, you know, again, coming from Google, my co-founders from single store, which is like sharded database company, we're like, well, the only way to scale to billions of users is sharding. Like you cannot build big computers, well fast enough at least. And so this is where we end up. We're like, hey, let's build a sharded blockchain that is actually developer friendly, that is designed for like kind of normal people. So we hide all the like, you know, private keys, all the hashes, et cetera, from the user. We give developers way to build in JavaScript and Rust and all of this kind of normal programming languages. And we did design it with, you know, our rigor of, you know, we're going to break it. And if we break it, we need to fix it. And we're going to do that, which took us a little bit of time to figure out how to stop breaking our own ideas. That's really how we started. That was uh, August, 2018, when we kind of kicked off. We right away brought a bunch of our, like, ex-Google, ex-Facebook, ex-Single Store people and the team to really, you know, start pushing this forward. And so, yeah, been almost four years now. It's a journey.
0: That's a fascinating story. And I want to go back at the end and talk about building amidst volatility and building in down markets in crypto. And obviously in 2018, you (laughs) you had a little bit of that. We've Uh, we've had
1: lots of experiences (laughs) with
0: that. (laughs) So so we'll we'll come back to that at the end. But there's a bunch of interesting threads I want to try to pull off on what you just said. And, And one of them is, you know, when you talk about that, obviously with technology, the natural path is optimization. It just makes sense. When you talk about hiding all the complexity and also allowing people to basically build and whatever, you know, native programming language that they know or that that they want to work in. That just makes sense. And yet it seems very different than other protocols. You know, like a lot of crypto seems almost a little tribal in terms of it's this way and it can only work this way. Where do you think that comes from and why aren't other projects being as intellectually, I don't know, honest (laughs) or is it just that it's much harder and you guys have just chosen the harder path? How do you think about that?
1: I mean, it's combination. I think it is harder to some extent to do a lot of this stuff. Like our account model is, you know, to design for user experience, you need to like actually make a more complex system underneath, right? And then hide hide it in such a way that people actually can understand it, right? Like making sure that languages work is actually super hard. I think, I mean kind of, for example, for Ethereum, this wasn't an option, there was actually nothing worked back then. And so they just, they invented DVM and that was kind of, and, and like the, the thing about to understand is also you're kind of under constant pressure to actually launch. And so you you don't always make good decisions because like you kind of need to, to execute faster. And so, and then changing later is super complicated. And then a lot of people just replicated EVM DVM. And so Kind of in our case, we also did that, but we did that as just a smart contract as something that's completely outside of the core protocol. So it actually runs and, and actually showcases how easy it is to develop on near because you can take something else, some other blockchain, and just run it as a smart contract. Part of it is also, I think people view some of the use cases, but also decisions on what blockchain is for differently, right? Like in our case, we came from like, hey, we want to build end user, like actual applications, right, which are able to use by, you know, we, so somebody did build in a community, a crowdsourcing application called NearCrowd, which has like two, 3000 daily active users, which are not technical, they are not, they are not engineers, they're not, they're not blockchain specialists, they're literally like people from factories and people who work at service industry in Philippines. and. It's very kind of broad, non-technical or like some kids like uh, under 14 and, and there's like somebody's grandma was using it as well. And that's just not usually the kind of mental model that a lot of folks are designing for. And we were kind of designing for that. And so... Yeah so a lot of it is just like people think oh you know smart contract developers should be you know this elite kind of limited thing so we will design a new programming language for example for them specifically you know it's fine if if there's only like 500 of them needed they can learn the programming language which again like we don't agree like we we see this really as this like Cambrian explosion of experimentation on top because everybody can combine with everything and so we want everyone to be able to do this we want every single developer to be able to write smart code. Maybe they will not, maybe they will reuse existing code, but then they need to be able to read the existing code, right? And this goes into like, well, we want actually people to be able to read the code because that's what, you know, the whole reliance on that is. And so, yeah, like how do we make it more kind of available is is like a very different decision-making, right? than sounds like the protocols.
0: Yeah. Yeah, sounds yeah deeply rooted, in, I think your guys' values, which is, which is very cool. And you know, I love. It seems like you, you kind of hit on it at the end there, talking about the, what you're really going for is this Cambrian explosion. Which, of course, that totally makes sense. You're building an ecosystem. You're building, you know, kind of a new reality that people can enter and they can build on. And so lowering the bar as much as possible, so anyone can do it, uh, just makes a ton of sense. I'd love to talk now about some of the kind of goals you guys had with with Near, and you know, those three ones. at least that at a very high level I find really appealing is you know, focusing on being climate neutral talk, you know, high speed and a low transaction fee layer one blockchain. And we've hinted on some of those. And so I'd love to kind of talk about those each and maybe what, where we could start is piggybacking off sharding because you guys have a really unique approach to sharding that obviously allows very high throughput. Um, Talk about, uh, you know, maybe get a little bit technical into what's different about the way you guys approach sharding and talk about why you did that and what that unlocks what what that, you know, creates for Nier
1: for sure yeah so kind of there's a bunch of folks and and still are who are understand that you cannot build a bigger machine to process all the transactions in the world and so the way to solve that is you know to run more stuff in parallel and so there's kind of a spectrum from something like cosmos where you say well you know you can run your chain and i can run your, our chain and they'll completely independent and run stuff in parallel and we're good, you know, and we just have, you know, hundreds of such chains and that's how we scale. And then we have bridges and stuff. And, you know, we've seen some of this interesting stuff happening this week or last week uh, about how, how that interacts, but kind of that's one model. Then there's a model which I will call rollups. There's a little bit like differences, how this works, but it's this idea of, hey, we have kind of a common security model. So we all align on on the security here, which might have helped with some of the situation that happened last week. But each kind of application or maybe set of applications have their own zone, app chain, roll-up, parachain, call it C-chain, whatever you want, right? There's so many names. Somebody on Twitter actually asked to like, hey guys, can you unify this?
0: (laughs) Uh, The short (laughs) answer is (laughs) no.
1: And so the idea there is... And on one side, like, hey, we scale, but we can, you know, have a common security, so we are able to communicate between these things. And so how common security implemented is very different for different of this, like, roll-ups versus power chains. But the user experience is the same, is that you need to think as a user, where the hell are your funds? Where is the app? Are they on the same things, so on different things? Can you move them? How long does it take? Like, are you going this way or is this, like, through the security level or like directly, because there's some like other application to move it directly. Like there's so much complexity that user need to think about, right? And at least you don't need to think about security, which you do need in Cosmos, but it's still a lot of complexity on the user, right? And right now we see that, right? There's like, there's Arbitrum, there's Optimism, there's like multiple EVM chains in Polkadot ecosystem and like, you don't know, like you need to like look up which application, like which one is where, like, oh, you know, is my wallet configured to the right thing, like switch, then, you know, move, bridge, etc. And so sharding kind of as a concept, I mean, all of this is sharding to be clear, but kind of general sharding concepts from Web2 is just like you shard kind of underneath the user, right? You don't expose user to the way you model your database. And so that's kind of where we've been aiming for. This is... To be clear, where ETH2 originally was planning to go, they have abandoned that path. And so, and at the same time, like there you have multiple ways to implement this, but at least the way we have, like we actually implemented multiple ways. (laughs) And so this is the way that actually works. From a user perspective, from a developer perspective, it's one chain. You don't need to think about sharding. You don't need to think about like how things are happening under the hood you have you know blocks produced you you know you interact with smart contracts you have wallet you have one account it's invisible for you what underneath happens is that we actually shard the blocks so we don't shard that we don't have multiple blockchains running in parallel we actually shard blocks and so because of this we can actually change number of shards dynamically so this is actually like in our roadmap uh kind of probably toward end of this year beginning of next year is Right now, you you need a governance to change the number of shards, but you can actually sh- change it dynamically based on the demand. Like, if there is some more demand, we can actually move some uh, contracts and accounts to different shards and like, allow allows them to have more capacity to process.
0: Seems very elegant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> very complicated to implement.
0: Well, yeah. yeah, everything uh, <laughs> elegant is very complicated.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it allows you yeah, to have like a very kind of straightforward model for the user. And so the, the example of this being when we actually changed, so we launched with one shard because well, you didn't need more than one shard when you launch, And so we actually resharded to four shards through governance in November last year. And there's zero change to the user developer, right? Like literally you did not even notice something happened, like it's still running. And the thing is like we even, we kind of even don't need to show it in tooling like if you want to see the shards, you actually need to like hit with like raw RPC calls to the you know to get block information. Like on explorers, on wallets, etc. You don't see the shards at all because like it, it doesn't matter, right? And we and we probably like the layout will change, which shard you're on will change. All all of this will change, like but none of it, it actually matters. So that's kind of how we've been kind of structuring this, and and it's it is a very elegant design which took us sadly a year to do, to come to. <laughs> we have this old papers uh, we've published, which have uh, three different designs before we got to this. But yeah, it, it allowed us to kind of, you know, already delivers this like capacity and also kind of continue to expand as usage grows. But also kind of through that journey, we, we figured out how to have a very fast consensus, which is able to finalize blocks and actually finalize BFT finality in two seconds. Kind of with one second blocks by really pipelining all of the uh, all of the communication and and really speeding up what Tendermint with Cosmos is doing and and kind of like Polkadot Tendermint and doom and um Ghost they all somewhat in the same space of BFT fanatic consensus and they all have this kind of a extra reliance on communication and and Doomsky, the near consensus actually is doing everything pipeline, meaning the communication is always happening forward. And so by the time you produce next block, you already know that you finalized the last block because you received those approvals in in when everything works correctly. And so that allows to kind of really uh, fast track this.
0: Yeah. That sounds so cool. Hopefully that was not too technical. I know Any anytime we talk about sharding, <laughs> it starts to get <laughs> somewhat technical. I want to talk about one thing before uh, we kind of move on to some of those other points. you You mentioned there about governance, and maybe this is a good time to talk about how why governance is important. and obviously, I'll, I'll try to give a little bit of a preamble and, and please feel free to you know add to that or kind of edit that. But you know you guys are a decentralized project, and we'll talk at the end about you know starting off how all projects generally start off centralized. At some point in time, they decide to become decentralized. That often comes with, obviously, members of your community being able to vote on governance issues. Talk about uh, like why the sharding was up for a vote and why it's important to allow your community to vote on things like that. And I know at some point you're going to move, it sounds like to this dynamic, but I think it's an interest just because you brought it up and, you know, it's kind of interesting there. I think it'd be great to touch on it because for people who have voted on a governance issue before, which I think is a very, very, very small subset of people, you kind of get it. Um, but there's a lot of people that I think hear governance and they don't really know what that means. So we can just talk a little bit about that.
1: For sure, yeah. So I'll actually, I'll tell a story of our launch instead. So our launch was actually uniquely done where the network was kind of brought up and given to validators. And then the, all the tokens were distributed and they were delegated, but they were not transferable. So nobody could transfer tokens. It was pretty much just like a kind of orig, origin set, validators run it around the world. and what needed to happen is validators and their delegates through the validators needed to vote to unlock the transfers. Right. And so, and this kind of was designed for two reasons. One is like, it was really to prove that the network runs on one side. And the second one is to show that validators and and the community and token holders are able to make decisions, right. They're able to self-organize, make decisions. If, if our team, you know, you know, like chills out or whatever, like at that point, which was one team, this thing can continue running, right? The validators know how to communicate this, all the channels, all the stuff is configured. And to be clear, like there was a huge setup to get there. Like there was a lot of, you know, stake wars, which was done to organize all that. And so they voted and they, there was a lot of back and forth, like there's some tooling that wasn't ready. Some people were like, hey, we don't want to launch yet because it's not ready yet for the specific things. And some people are, no, we want to launch because you know, we want this token to be live and we want it to be like actually, you know, exchangeable. And so uh, that kind of, you know, there was a little bit of a drama at that point. I mean, like for, for a brief second. That happened, but like that was uh, the process, right? Which which allowed people to like express their opinion, communicate. Like some, you know, some validators, for example, voted, and then their token hold- like to- delegates, token holders who delegate to them, did not agree with their decision, and so they you know expressed that, and they they forced them to switch their decision, and so you kind of so this was like you know in a way it was an experiment. In a way, like we needed to do that to launch the network, so you know you, you experimented broad. But that's that just showcases kind of both the power that the community is able to make decisions on the protocol. It's not it's not a single team, even if it, there's a team that's building the code, like there's community that is able to make decisions, it is able to enact them, and is able to, you know, like in a way potentially fork off this team and actually like choose a different team or, or do something different. That's again important because like, you don't want to rely on a single party, even if, you know, this party is me to make decisions because like, you know, there's all kinds of things from, you know, being not available to do the decisions to, uh, you know, for some reason becoming malicious, right? And so it it's important to have this power. And we kind of see that like in the ecosystem it's getting stronger and stronger through actually decentralization itself. And so what we have done since launch is we decentralized our team. A lot of the kind of what people were there before the launch actually left and now we don't have the, that company anymore. Uh, so uh, we're kind of finalizing that process. So we, I mean, originally spun out Foundation, which is kind of really responsible for education, for funding in the ecosystem for, for the decentralization regulatory work. Uh, we have Human Guild, which is responsible for gaming. And they really focused on kind of human, like human part of the, of the ecosystem. They have a really, uh, really good community there. We have Proximity that's focused on DeFi. We have uh OWC, which is an accelerator, which also kind of originally started but you know spun out. And then we have, you know, near China and MetaVeb, the Ecofund, we have, you know, near Ukraine, which now in Portugal, a regional hub, and so and we have more and more of this e- e- kind of regional hubs like uh in Kenya, in Balkans starting as well. And so really becoming like half Strong teams present everywhere in the world have very different opinions, have very different stakeholders themselves as well. And bringing these ideas right to the community, bringing them to kind of decision making is important because at the end, we're we not trying to have like this monotonic culture. It's, It's all about having everyone represented, having in all those places, you know, actual like, you know, Getting people their uh, access and control over the data assets and governance. And so, to do that, you need this kind of really rich and active community and like actually work on this. And so, kind of part of it is like I call it the smosis, where like parts of the things are just like spun out and kind of grow on their own. And so, that's been doing. And so, kind of the left out of the team. Have also spun out into Pagoda, which is a Web3 startup platform, really focused on like building all the tooling for Web3 startups. And so now, like the original core team doesn't even exist, kind of in 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 the shape and form that like it started, because everybody is kind of in different places in the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, you covered a ton of ground there. I mean, I love the uh, the story you shared around literally having decentralization and governance show up from day one when you launch the project, because it's very cool. And it's a way, I think, from the very, you know, literally the first day that the protocol is going live of saying, no, we deeply care about decentralization. We're going to start off actually with this kind of new novel approach, but we're doing it because we really believe in decentralization. And, you know, you hinted at it at the end, and I'd love to explore it a little bit more in detail of for people that aren't you know familiar every project starts out centralized and what we mean by that is it's traditionally like yourself and your co-founder and the initial team it's literally people just deciding to work on something together and so they're self-organized they basically form a you know a small team they obviously have a company they might raise funding out of that company but then there's a really interesting moment we, typically it's around when the mainnet goes live or the protocol actually launches where then you know basically the protocol is owned by a foundation and the the model changes from centralized you know centralized control to very broad decentralization you hinted at it there i would love to talk about you know from your perspective how has your role changed when when near was centralized versus decentralized and then you know paint a picture for people you talked about a lot of specific entities there but just really broadly what are you pushing down to these hubs and talk about that hub approach because i think it's very unique yeah i think
1: kind of my role I would say went from, you know, I obviously was kind of helping to architect the protocol and then was helping to kind of set up like foundation and, and, and a then lot, a lot of like fundraising, legal structure there, and then kind of organizing this community for launch. But over time, yeah, my role started to transition more into like how to help projects succeed on near, right? So working more with... Uh, Projects working more with newcomers who want to build something. And so, part of kind of this more global idea, right, like of Web3 is so I have this like very complex mind chart of how I think Web3 should develop with, I don't know, 100 boxes. And so, each box is a component of Web3. It's everything from identity to, you know, conflict resolution to reputation to, you know, decentralized storage, et cetera, right? So, blockchain is one component there. And so really kind of in, you know, trying to work with teams to fill out this whole map, right? And there's dependencies, there's kind of interconnections, how they worked with each other, et cetera. And so in a way it's like advising, but it's also like, you know, being there for kind of product, connecting them with other pieces of ecosystem, sometimes kind of helping incubate it, et cetera. And at the same time, helping find leaders in different regions, right? So I do believe kind of crypto is especially uh, needed in, developing country, developing markets, right? I mean, I'm from Ukraine. Right now, Ukraine is uh, uh, crypto pretty much, uh, <laughs> runs on crypto, but also, you know, Latam, uh, Southeast Asia, all of those places. And so kind of the idea is to really find kind of strong leaders, people who are really excited and then empower them, right? So it's not it's not that hubs like report to foundation, they're not, they're actually independent companies which are working for their own, you know, Incentives, but they have kind of percentage of their profits are repurposed for the ecosystem development, right? For community and marketing and all the stuff. And so this is designed to have like this independent hubs around the world, which are kind of self interested in success of this whole ecosystem while uh, still contributing to kind of this like lifting, you know, the whole ecosystem as well. And so that allows to really both have. Local presence, very strong local presence is people, you know, doing everything from, you know, funds, like allocating funds to projects in the ecosystem. They're doing their own product development. They're working with governments. They're working with uh, regulators as well in those regions. And they also become, in a way, part of the governance, like this whole community governance, because they actually, they must opt in in that region, right? So everybody comes to them to learn more about what's going on. And so in a way, this kind of, you know, as you have validators, like who are, you know, people who are more technical, who are running this, you have these regional hubs who are more kind of tapped into the ecosystem part. And so they become kind of the other. And in general, like when I think of governance, there's a lot of different stakeholders in the ecosystem, right? And so they all gets represented differently but like as a individual you probably are parts and kind of here parts there and so you want to have some kind of exposure like as you delegate your you know vote or you delegate or kind of even information you consume you have like these different connections now yeah my role is really about kind of advising projects you know finding partnerships as well as you know finding really amazing people around the world to To kind of start some of these hubs and projects.
0: Yeah. So in some ways, you're just like any other contributor (laughs) to the near ecosystem, but you're also a connective tissue between different projects, different people, different regions around the world. And I'm guessing people working on complementary stuff, you know, where, where they should obviously be working together and collaborating.
1: Yeah, pretty much connecting people. That's like half of my telegram is just connecting somebody to somebody and then trying to figure out how to escape that group.
0: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God only knows what your Telegram looks like. It's probably <laughs> mildly overwhelming to say the least. <laughs> I've I've
1: half hit the maximum groups in Telegram. <laughs> wow, and I didn't so even it, know that was a it, thing. Uh, so <laughs> that is a thing. There's five thousand groups, and then wow. at that point, Telegram out the nukes some of the groups because it overfills. I think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'd love to go and talk about that mind map you have of Web three because I haven't. You, you know, even just in some of the things you threw out there, like conflict resolution. Super interesting. I haven't heard anyone talk about that as a specific problem to be solved in Web 3. But it obviously makes sense because what are you doing? I think it seems like your mind map uh, probably answers the question. In Web 3, if we're decentralized, we face different challenges. We face different problems. So what are those different problems? And then, you know, how do we want to bucket those and think about solving them? Can you spend a little bit more time walking us through some of the things in that mind map? And I think specifically what I'd be curious about is if you could just pull out some of the things that probably are non-obvious, like conflict resolution, again, is an example I find really interesting. I'm sure there's others there. What's on your mind map that people probably aren't thinking about?
1: So I'll just kind of explain the, like the top of it was if we want to build kind of decentralized versions of many of the applications people use right now kind of day-to-day, right? And this is, you know, social, this is things like food delivery, this is things like, you know, Uber, this is things like, you know, GitHub, et cetera. Like, what do we need to do? If you think of something like Uber or food delivery, it's, it's actually kind of a common piece that underneath, and I call it gig protocol, right? It's really like matching somebody who wants to do some service and somebody who needs a service, right? And so what gig protocol is actually underneath is a reputation, right? And when something goes wrong, like somebody did not, you did not bring food or you did bring food, but then somebody said you did not, is conflict resolution, right? Which then requires identity, like some form of identity. And, and obviously we don't want, you know, kind of privacy, leaking identity. We want, you know, how do we privacy first identity? What does that look like? So we need, you know, zero-knowledge proving, proxy encryption, and all this kind of like, then you're getting into like more technical components. And so similarly, if we have social, right? the main component of social is social graph. There's something that should belong to the to the person, right? And it's actually a very complex problem because like you will not be putting your full social graph on a blockchain. It doesn't matter how scalable blockchain is, it's still not scalable enough. I mean, like it's just like security parameters wise, but there's other you know, ways to do that. And so how do you do that? How do you do reputation? Reputation is probably, and especially like for me, it became actually more, Relevant in March because we started running this uh, humanitarian fund for Ukraine, and we actually were working with a lot of volunteers, like over five thousand volunteers. Our fund worked with, and some of them were not, you know, stole stuff. Uh, like, I mean, we knew some, we'll lose some percentage of money, but like, you know, we did KYC, we did, you know, kind of uh, pinpointing them location, proof of location. We did, you know, kind of background check via the government database we, we did it and we did like if somebody knew in already existing networks so like a, a kind of a relationship network and so like all that obviously was very centralized very privacy invasive very not web 3 but uh, it was needed to be done right and so as we think about it like how do we actually build this but in a way that truly decentralized and actually like privacy preserving
0: yeah, it's fascinating. I, I want to go back and talk about one other of the kind of core components of what you're building it near that I think is really interesting. And it's the goal of being sustainable. You can talk about that as climate neutral. There's a bunch of different ways to frame that up. But, you know, I think even just going back to your comment around proof of work, obviously, from your perspective, you're always trying to be optimizing. So sure, now that's naturally going to be a goal because you, the goal is to use as little power as you can. The goal is to try to build something that's sustainable where you're getting more out for the same or less power in as you, as you described it. Talk a little bit more about how you've approached that problem and how you think about sustainability or climate neutrality when it comes to blockchain. Because I think you have an interesting mental model there.
1: Yeah, I mean, so in general, this is kind of in the same vein of like this huge mental map, right? Is like we need we need all these things to be sustainable, period, right? Because like we have one planet. I mean, yeah, Elon Musk is working on getting us to the next one, but you know, pro- probably we Earth still don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> well, we don't want to fuck up this one. Yeah, for sure. And so how do we get there? Obviously optimization is part of it, but also like, you know, ability to understand where things going, what like where are the waste, where are the, you know, kind of emissions, etc. So for us like what near you know, canby is this platform that allows everyone to build application like sustainable applications. Right? So not not just the application itself sustainable, but also applications that help other industries to be sustainable, right? But the first step is always, you know, like bef- before before trying to fix somebody else's problem, like make sure you are you are actually <laughs> not part of the problem. And so this is why Near is uh, you know carbon neutral. It's certified. It's working with. South Pole to kind of offset all the emissions. And actually the funny part is because of stake the emissions of the validators are like, I think only a percentage of the total emissions that that, uh, kind of foundation is uh, calculating. A lot more is coming from travel Uh, (laughs) because like airplanes are actually a bigger uh, issue. And so, and this goes into like, well, how do we help, for example, airplanes to be more sustainable, right? What is this like? Well, obviously we're not working on, you know, what are synthetic fuels, but we can actually track, you know, usage of synthetic fuels There can be incentivization systems to do that. There can be like, for example, if you're using there's projects, which use now crypto for booking tickets, maybe there's an, you know, some offset automatic in that embedded and stuff like this, right? You can start building more and more tooling and concepts, making it easier for people to be sustainable and, and operate in a sustainable way without needing to kind of go out of their way while actually, you know, committing to, uh, to sound's goals.
0: That's so cool. And so it sounds like, yeah, you're just thinking again, it seems like another example where you're truly thinking about it multidimensionally and you're working on, you know, kind of sustainability at all levels, or at least the technology and the infrastructure and the value of trying to make sure that you're being sustainable at all of those levels which is a really Exactly. Yeah. Approach. Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of do a little bit of a retrospective and and talk about the lessons you've learned building near, you know, you gave an example earlier on of, you know, having three different designs of sharding (laughs) before landing on the fourth design that you're actually moving forward with. And clearly, you know, just, I don't know, just to focus on that for a second at any company, so much of innovation and invention is just iteration. And and so there's always that, but, you know, I'd be curious just from your perspective, you've now been working on this since 2018, as you look back, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned that might be applicable to others building in crypto? And it may be people building in the near ecosystem. It may be people building in other ecosystems. What have you learned that you think is worth passing on?
1: Well, I think there are two interesting pieces. One is build upgradability right away. <laughs> so it it's interesting because like the blockchain is usually just, you know, people have this meme of immutability and that's like, you know, you, you, you know, you launch an application and it's forever. And that's not true because like nothing is like staying there forever. Like we need things to evolve and even Bitcoin for whatever, you know, slow speed it evolving. It actually does. They're adding new features. They're doing stuff. And so doing an explicit way to do upgradability, some ways that allows people to do this and, and like, with the community consent, with understanding how this works, with you know uh, whatever mechanics you want and, and need, it's really important because otherwise you will need to add it later and it will suck. <laughs> that And so within that, then just launch faster. So if you have a great ability, that means you can upgrade. I mean, if you can, like we call it sandboxing, like we're actually trying to build some tooling for that so you can launch a smart contract but actually sandboxed it, it only can process some amount of money per day. So if nothing else, you can just I- insure sandbox. If if the contract gets completely broken, you just insure sandbox for that. And then it locks automatically if something wrong outside of this norm. And so you, you can make it like kind of easier to launch. And so for us specifically, what we should have done is somewhere in April 19, we actually had an implementation with Tendermint. We had our kind of smart contracts running on Tendermint without sharding. And this was right in the moment where we realized our sharding we did implement was not really, was too complex. It was not something that, you know, made sense. And so we should have just gotten that to launch, right? That, That was not sharding. We did not like deliver on the promise of sharding, but it was a working blockchain that could have gotten us people to start building applications. And... Instead, we kind of, you know, launched in October 2020, right? So like over a year and a half later. And obviously, like a lot of stuff that to launch we needed to do, we just did it a bunch later, which we could have kind of started doing in parallel while still figuring out sharding, which, you know, we did and then implemented it and then kind of started figuring out how to launch only like in the beginning of 2020. So so generally, like there is, yeah, if we're talking about three blockchains, There's so much things to to go into launch that are non-technical that, you know, try to make minimal thing technical, I mean, secure it, obviously, but then launch it because then you can actually paralyze your technical process of continuously improving it while already being in the market, while already being users, right? And in Web 2, it's like a normal thing that everybody says, but in Web 3, it feels like everybody kind of went completely, like, you know, it's complete waterfall, Write a white paper that defines everything from day one, and then we go and build it forever, and then we launch it, and it's beautiful. And it's like, well, no.
0: <laughs> the rules of building stuff haven't changed. <laughs>
1: that still yeah, is a very of, difficult yeah, approach. Yeah, haven't changed
0: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to ask two closing questions. Um, this has been a fascinating overview of, of what you're building at near and so many, yeah, the stories you've shared have been amazing. The first question that I wanted to ask was around, you know, going back to something you mentioned earlier in the show in 2018, you decide to found near, you're in the middle of a crypto bear market <laughs> You're Uh, there's an enormous amount of volatility. And the reason I want to talk about this is not, you know, that, uh, Sometimes in markets, things go down. That should be just an accepted universal maxim. Everyone understands that things are going to ebb and flow. But I think what's in, the reason it's interesting to talk about is we're all human. And at the end of the day, if you're building something and you feel like there's this existential threat, you know, the market's going down or there's this price volatility or people are leaving or there's uncertainty that obviously can factor into your psychology and, and how you're feeling about what you're building. And so the question I want to ask just really simply at a high level is how do you personally handle fear and anxiety when you're building in crypto? And then a second is just advice, you know, to yourself and other developers or builders listening about what to do now, because we're again, in another moment in time in crypto where there's extreme volatility and it feels like an existential threat, at least to some people in some parts of the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, so we started in,
1: so we started thinking about blockchain in May and then we started like in August and we fundraised in, I think like September or something and October and uh, we closed our fundraise and and market went up a little bit. Uh, it's It's like pretty much every time we fundraise one way or another there's some market going down and probably somebody needs to start trading on that. Uh, <laughs> and then obviously like actually we, we were doing another fundraising beginning of 2020 when March uh, 12th happened. Which was terrible super time. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so generally like at this point, it's been so many times already that it's kind of like, okay, f- fine. Uh, I think the, The interesting thing that changed, right, like in 18, when, so I talked with my, you know, ex-colleagues at that point at Google, and and when I said, well, we're doing blockchain now, they're like, what are you guys scamming now, people? That was kind of the thing. But then this the same people are now, you know, like, you know, invested in this, they are interested, they've, you know, suggested ideas and projects for sustainability as well, for example, or for using this with AI. And so... Like the reality is the shift has happened. The kind of, the mentality is already there. So like, yeah, there's market volatility and there will be market volatility. I mean, the kind of the equity market is volatile as well. That doesn't mean like people stopped using Google or Facebook or, you know, those companies stopped pretty much making, you know, billions of dollars. And like we we see, you know, by all metrics, like usage is there, people are there, you know, more and more like, really good Web 2 people are coming as well, like they, they are interested and they see the space as like, you know, actually the next the next wave. And so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, keep calm and build on. That's really the...
0: <laughs> keep calm and build that's, on.
1: <laughs> I yeah. like it. I haven't heard that exact uh, phrasing. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I posted that too. Like we have this uh, chat, uh, with, with a lot of uh, like near ecosystem founders. So this is what I posted to them.
0: Well, and I like your story because I think it it touches on another aspect of what I felt, which is just, there is no words that are going to comfort you. And part of it is just living through it and continuing to build. And hopefully over time you get desensitized. You know, maybe desensitized is not the most positive word or is not the right word, but it kind of feels accurate. It's just over time you stop caring about it less.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like it's the same as, you know, if you're a VC, you cannot... Like, this is, I mean, this is may sound bad, but like, as we see, you cannot attach to any single company, right? You cannot be like, hey, oh, this company, you know, was, like you try to help them, you try to sell them, but, you know, if some of them go to business, like that's normal, that's part of your kind of strategy, portfolio strategy. Similarly, here in crypto, if you're in crypto and you're Web3 and you believe in this, like, ideals and vision, Like the kind of short-term price fluctuations, right? However, however they are, is you know they're not affecting you because you're looking for long-term, right? That's your strategy. And so, who they do affect is people who came on to make short money for a period of time, right? And and like in this sense, like this is why it's actually like in 2018 and beginning of 19 was actually pretty good because the market was actually pretty empty. Like there's only a few teams building. And so from this perspective, yeah, right now is like, we we welcome, by the way, every founder who wants to build right now something. And uh, we have funding to help them. We have eco funds. We have, you know, partnerships with VCs as well, because like all of those VCs do have billions of dollars of raised funds to actually deploy capital into seed rounds and, and kind of series A. So, you know, build on
0: and i love too, as well too because both from venture capitalist perspective who always talk about you know you want to do the counter cyclical thing and in investing you always want to go against the grain same thing with building and so it's one of you know but it's so much harder to do than to say or to think and so it's always when is the best time to build and when is the best time to invest it's always in moments like this where there's a massive amount of uncertainty and it's people leaving i want to talk about your humanitarian aid project um and for a couple of reasons, obviously, number one, you know, you're Ukrainian by background. There's a terrible war going on in Ukraine. You decide to start this humanitarian, you know, effort. Talk about, I think, just your perspective as a Ukrainian, why this was important and what you're trying to do with the foundation and how people can get involved.
1: Yeah. So it's called Unchained Fund, Unchained Fund. And so kind of when the war just started, you know, first reaction, obviously call everyone, you know, make sure they're safe, you know, try to figure out how to get them out Second reaction is like, well, how do, how can I help? Right. You know, I was like in New York, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to go fight with a, with a, with a rifle. Like there's better ways I can contribute. So, uh, you know, first reaction was sending some money. And so it's war. It's happening right now. It is unclear if like the Kiev was pretty much under attack, so you don't know actually if the banking system will work because it may actually be bombarded out. And so crypto makes total sense as a way to send donations and help people. And so kind of the first thing I did was just sending whatever, how many bitcoins I have to the this uh, Comeback Back Alive Fund, which is an existing NGO that's been helping people for like a long time. And then and then you're like, okay, what what else can I do, right? Uh, and to be clear, like there was the only one who had Bitcoin address. At all, right? Like none, none of the other things had it. And so, one of our actually folks from ecosystem was building uh, Atlantis World. He reached out saying, like, "Hey, we're thinking to do a kind of crypto fund, right? Like, just collect funds and then distribute them to other NGOs, right? Just like be this place where people can send funds to, and then we just convert them into the NGOs." And so that's that's how it started, right? Like uh, I joined and kind of we started uh, collecting funds. And then we kind of evaluated the NGOs and realized that those NGOs are very inefficient. They're not able to kind of really get on the ground. Like they have no reporting. Like their reporting is once a year. And so you need to wait for like a year to, to get reports from them. And so we're like, hey, we collected this money. We're responsible for them. We cannot give it to this fund, which like potentially was raised 50%. And then the report will be in 2023. And then, like, we don't, and we have no idea how fast they'll be able to deploy capital. And so instead, we started working directly with volunteers, uh, because they were, like, there's a whole network of you know, crypto enthusiasts and, and crypto founders. And, like, they started referring people, and then we kind of created a process around that and built kind of, you know, CRM system with, you know, all the all the stuff that you usually do. And so kind of generally, like, the, on one side, obviously, I'm I'm just, you know it's good to be helpful and be able to help and be able to kind of also a lot of people then were reaching out to me saying like hey how can we help and I'm like well here's actually a list of things you can donate to for example also here's the things we need to buy right there was you know all kinds of equipment all kinds of uh, you know generators and stuff like this which like became hard to get Um, so if you can find places to buy it uh, we actually got like a bunch of equipment to you know Nikolaev, we got a bunch of, uh, which was uh, surrounded, we got a bunch of equipment to, uh, we got a bunch of medicine to a place that was completely uh, overtaken. And so, like that was kind of, you know, important work to be done. But at the same time, crypto was fundamental because we can actually move really quickly, right? It was done, you know, 20 minutes, we had, you know, a way to start collecting funds. First day, we already had a million, you know, it's over 10 million uh, at this point. And so, yeah, I think this is the future of NGOs in general, and like this, and spe- specifically disaster relief. I think disaster relief is especially like, hey, you know, deploy kind of a short-lived uh, kind of team plus you know lots of software to kind of orchestrate this. Volunteers on the ground finding, it, collected, it, and distributed. And then I think the next stage here is really turning. I mean, there, there's some interesting stuff there, which is like a UBI program right now with women. With children under six, there's like 10,000 women right now uh, who are getting like 25 euro per week. But then going beyond this is actually starting to build for-profit projects to rebuild. So actually like create investment DAOs that are able to rebuild buildings, rebuild infrastructure with with expected returns uh, to really kind of align incentives and fund and kind of get money into the ecosystem of Ukraine. And in turn, actually make Ukraine probably the you know, capital of crypto as well, because it's already kind of been springing there.
0: I think that would be an incredible outcome. So thank you for doing that. And, and you know, as you mentioned, anyone who wants to donate or wants to learn more, you can go to unchained.fund. Thank you for doing that. I think it's a really cool and it's a really important project. And yes, to your point, I think, especially for moments like this, it's about speed. It's about actually getting it to where it counts. So the traditional model, I think in a lot of ways, it goes to the things we've been talking about around what's, you know, the kind of cons of a centralized model. And again, an example of what you can do by just taking that and almost deconstructing it and building it back up in a decentralized way. There's so many more questions I could ask you, Ilya, but um, <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's been so much fun to, to be able to kind of go through all this. Everyone listening and watching can learn more about Near at NIR.org or by following Near Protocol on Twitter. And if you're a developer listening, you can jump in uh, and learn more in Near's developer docs at docs.nier.org. Is there anything else you would call you know, pe- call people's attention to or any other ways you would direct people to go if they want to get involved in the ecosystem?
1: Yeah, I think nier.chat for our Discord and near.org slash grants if you need funding to build something in your Nier ecosystem.
0: Nier.chat is awesome. I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ilya. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash one zero eight that's 108. At outlieracademy.com, you can find all of our other founder interviews profiling incredible companies like Eight Sleep, Common Stock, Varda Space Industries, Superhuman, Primal Kitchen, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and so many more. In every interview, we deconstruct the ideas, frameworks, and strategies they use to build these incredible companies. You can also find videos of all of our interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash Outlier Academy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length interviews as well as our favorite short clips from every episode, including this one. So make sure to subscribe. We post new videos every single week. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn under the handle Outlier Academy. Thank you so much again for listening. We'll see you right here next week with a brand new episode next Wednesday.